If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. One of the things that I've, uh, I've probably found myself struggling many times in my life with, and I don't know if you're like me, is minding my own business. I take a look at what people do in their lives, and I have a hard time not wondering why they're doing what they're doing. I have a hard time stopping myself from overanalyzing what others are doing. And what ends up happening is because I'm so concerned with what others are doing, I find myself slipping in the areas that I need to be concerned with myself. You see, every single one of us at a time or two in our life, maybe more than a time or two, we get caught up in what everybody else is doing. We get caught up in how this nation is going. We get caught up in how our children are misbehaving. Parents, we get caught up in the way everyone else is at work and the way that their performance doesn't compare to ours. We get caught up in simply outdoing our spouse. We get caught up in trying to prove that we're the ones that have it right, they have it wrong. What if we were to start examining ourselves first? How many things would change in this nation? How many things would change in the church if people before they came to the pastor with the problems in the church realized that they were part of the problem in the church? How many things would change in our nation if the people of God, before praying to God, decided to make sure they humbled themselves and repent of sin that they need to own first? You see, it's very easy for us to point the finger at everybody else. It's very easy for us to go, they're at fault, and not look at ourselves. You see, this morning, as we look at this text in John chapter 21, what we see is Peter has an encounter with Jesus. And this is Peter being restored back into a good fellowship with Christ. Remember, we talked about the fact that he had denied him three times. He had spent all this time with Christ, three years, and then in the lowest point of Christ's ministry, when Jesus is about to be crucified, Peter and the rest of the disciples desert him. Peter finds himself in a mess. He ends up denying Christ, the rooster crows, and he weeps bitterly because he's broken that he's done this to his master. Well, that's not where the story ends. And we talked about this at the end last week, that Jesus goes on and restores Peter. Well, this morning, we're going to take a little bit more uh, time in John chapter 21 to see how it is that Jesus restores Peter and what else he actually mentions to him that I think is important to us. Because I think every one of us, to a certain extent, when God restores us, we tend to find ourselves, after we're restored, looking and paying attention to what others are doing. What is it that they're going through now? And, and being concerned more with what God's dealing with in their life than what he's just been showing us we need to deal with in our own. So in, in John chapter 21, we're going to be looking specifically at two things. Number one, the personal call, which is your concern, by the way, verses 18 and 19. And number two, others' call, which is Christ's concern. It's not yours or mine. Verses 20 through 23. Number one, the personal call, which is your concern, verses 18 and 19. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. 
But when you are old, you will, be stretch, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You see, Peter has just been restored by Jesus Christ after having denied him three times to the point of actually pronouncing a curse on himself. It's a mercy in and of itself that God didn't strike Peter down for what he actually testified to those around him. What led up to this point, if we look back through the context of of, uh, John and also the other gospel, is that Peter, after Christ's resurrection, he runs to the tomb when he hears the news of the death of Christ. We see that back in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 10. Now, he and John were very close friends of Jesus, so they were very much in a lot of these events together because they hung out with Jesus more frequently than the rest with James alongside them. But for some reason, what's interesting is John, when he describes this in John chapter 20, he writes extensively about the encounters that Peter has, and in particular with Christ. What's interesting is almost to take the spotlight of himself, he says, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he did, uh, he did mention that he was a faster runner than Peter, though. He mentioned that he ran faster than Peter, at least in a narrative way, right? The other disciple, um, me, outran Peter, right? So, you know, he came to the tomb first, but Peter went inside first. So he gives him the props for actually going into the tomb first. Um, What's interesting is Peter had exclusively Jesus appear to him. In fact, you see that in Luke 24, 34. After the disciples on on the road to the mouse actually pointed this out, that, that Peter had a specific encounter with Christ. Uh, we don't have all the details for that, but we do know that Jesus appeared to him specifically. Peter also has a miraculous encounter with Jesus when it comes to fishing. When Jesus calls them from the shore and tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat. You see that here in the text earlier. In John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, we're just going to read this really quick. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were there, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had, come, had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord, Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? 
Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what, what Peter has as an encounter here is that Jesus, Jesus encounters him on the shore. He goes back and fishes, and he doesn't catch anything. And Jesus miraculously tells him to cast the, cast the net on the right side, and he's going to catch fish. About 153, an exact number that we actually have written down and recorded for us. What's interesting is that when Peter hears that it's Jesus, because John actually points it out first, it seems like John many times notices that, and then Peter just reacts and responds to that. He jumps right in the water and swims quickly to, 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 to see Jesus. Jesus actually takes the time to have breakfast with his disciples and then spends some personal time with Peter after that. In fact, he asks Peter the question that we finished with last week. Do you love me? Jesus asks the question three times, and it finally hits, hits home with Peter that his devotion to Christ was not to be merely words of, I love you. Is that really what we tend to portray when it comes to those words? Are they, are they anything more than just words to many of us? When we tell one another we love each other, do we really mean that? Or are they just empty words many times that come out of our mouths? You see, Jesus, Jesus understood that Peter needed to be humbled to be restored. We need to be humbled in order to be restored. Prideful people don't get restoration. They think they're fine. As a side note, we can learn a practical lesson here in what Jesus does. Make sure you have food before a serious conversation. There are things you can pick up in the Bible that you can still apply today. How many of you have ever had a conversation with somebody and you were hungry and it did not go well? Right? Especially if you're going to confront someone on something, right? Well, some of you, it's just coffee. That's your thing. You have to have coffee, right? The reality is Jesus, Jesus makes sure he takes time with the disciples, he has breakfast, and then he goes ahead and actually has this personal conversation with Jesus, uh, with Peter. What Jesus is doing is letting Peter almost know as a representative of the rest, here's some things I want you to pay attention to. So here's what's interesting is when Jesus makes the statement right in the beginning, in verse number 15, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? There are two possibilities for what he means by more than these. Number one, his fishing profession. What did he just do? He went fishing, right? So you could say these or these things could be the reference that he's referring to. Or number two, which is the other disciples and their commitment to Christ. Peter's stance before Jesus' crucifixion of being more committed than the others was very obvious. He said, I'm, if everybody else doesn't do this, I will. I will stand firm for you, Lord. I will do it to the point of death, right? Peter makes that statement boldly. Even if others deny you, I won't. But he ended up doing that. What's absolutely incredible here is that he was humbled by a little servant girl. It didn't take much to call him out. You'd think it was some you know, tough soldier that came up to him with a sword ready to make sure he would own that he was a disciple of Jesus. No, it was a little servant girl. And he absolutely flipped his original statement to Jesus and was not faithful. See, Jesus actually follows up and tells him to care for his sheep here in this text. Early in the book of John, the same author here, sheep are described by Jesus as his disciples or followers, if you will. 
My sheep hear my voice. That's what you should think of when it comes to John. John uses terms very similarly. What Jesus is doing really here is breaking down the importance of Peter being a disciple maker. Remember, this is right before Jesus leaves them with the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Jesus, when he first calls Peter, what does he actually tell him? Does anybody remember? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right? What's interesting is... Um, something really neat happened when we, Luke, re, when we read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, when it comes to the call that Jesus had on Peter. I just want to read these verses, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Here's what it says. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them, and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put, it out, put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. It's a small detail that a lot of us miss when it comes to the calling that Jesus had on Peter's life. So what do you find interesting that I found interesting here in this text? Jesus is almost reminding Peter of what it was like when he first met him. Jesus is almost going back to the start. God always does that with us. He wants us to go back to our first love. You know what he does that? How he does that? He actually brings us back to when we first came to saving faith. Because Peter's response there is, I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to know you. I don't deserve to have you as my Lord and Master. And you see, the problem with a lot of us is as we've grown in the Christian faith, what many times happens is we get so used to it. It becomes so trivial to us. And what happens here is that Peter actually himself gets an encounter from Christ to go back to what it was like when he first met him. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you went back and reminded yourself of God's goodness to the point of you remembered when you first came to saving faith? No matter what age it was, you could have been older in in, in years, you could have been younger, you could have been a little child. But you remember the first encounter you had with Christ. You remember the first time that you you bowed your knee to Christ and said, you know what, you're my Savior, you're my Lord. If that hasn't happened to you this morning, I, I promise you that's the best thing that you can do. That is the greatest thing that you can have, the blessing of Christ as your Lord and Master. There's nothing greater on this earth. No riches can take that in its place. The lesson of restoration that Jesus was trying to teach Peter 
is something that all of us need to be taught. We all have times that we just go astray, we do our own thing, and then we have to be brought right back to where it all began. That's what our calling is, just as Peter's was, a disciple to make disciples. That's what Jesus is calling him to do. And remember, he told them that right up front, right? You'll be a fisher of men. And he's reminding Peter, here's what, here's what your mission is. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to make disciples. You're going to raise men and women to be followers of, of me. What Peter is told, however, is that his devotion will be tested. Someone will carry you where you do not wish. There will be severe trials that Peter's going to have to go through. And ending, ending in his death as a martyr one day. Peter has taught some important lessons here that we need to learn. He may have been an expert fisherman, but even his best effort can be fruitless. You may be good or gifted at something, but that giftedness in and of itself will not help you in every situation. In fact, it may fail you in your most difficult time. The company you've worked for for 20 years may no longer need you as they downsize. Many people found that out this year. Your formula for raising the perfect family may not turn out the way you would like. Another lesson in humility. Your attempt to improve your relationships apart from the Spirit of God working through the Word of God will fail you each and every time. It's amazing how many of us fail at the things we think we're best at. We fail at the things that we think we're best at. You see, you don't have as much control over your future as you think you do, Peter. That's what Jesus is getting at here. You don't have as much control as you think you do of your future. Just because you seem to have a lot of control over your past does not mean the future is that way. In fact, here's how it's going to go down, Peter. You won't have any control over your death. They're going to take you away, and you're going to die a martyr. And you won't enjoy any of that. But that's how it's going to be. Just because our health has been good in the past does not mean we're guaranteed to live tomorrow. In fact, you could die in an accident tomorrow or today. Just because we've managed to save money that we have in the bank does not mean that it can't instantly be worthless if the government deems it so. Just because we don't want difficulty in our future does not mean that there won't be any difficulty. In fact, Peter makes a statement in 1 Peter 2.21 that as Jesus suffered on our behalf, he left us an example because we're going to also have suffering in our lives. I can't promise you, disciple of Jesus Christ, that it's going to be easy for you and me. I can't promise that. What I can promise you is that God has specific things for each one of us to worry about and be concerned with. And what he wants you to be concerned with is not necessarily what he wants someone else to be concerned with. All our paths are not exactly the same. We all follow Jesus, but Jesus has a different path he wants us all to take as far as when it comes to our personal journey. As Paul says in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Your best life, believer, is not here. I know some of you want that so bad. I get it. You want, you want that beautiful house, nobody to bother you, the perfect kids, all the money you could have. The best place for you is eternity. It's not here. 
Your best future is awaiting for you on the other side, believer. I know we've lost a few of our brothers recently here in this church. Can I assure you, I don't have to worry about any of this coronavirus stuff. I don't have to worry about any of this economic craziness. They're, they're just thrilled in the glory of Christ. In glory. Enjoying all the things that heaven brings. You'd think with the restoration that was brought to Peter that Peter would be confident, right? He'd be proud of the fact that Jesus counted him worthy to suffer on his behalf. But instead, Peter does what we all do. The typical, hey, what about God's calling on their life? What about them? What about them? Why do I have to be concerned with me only? What are they going to do? Number two, others call, which is Christ's concern. Verses 20 through 23. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but that if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? What Jesus does here is tell Peter to follow him, to be my disciple. But Peter, instead of asking how to be a better disciple, does what we all do, right? <laughs> what about John? Are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him what his future has in store? Why are you calling me out? Why are you telling me what I need to work on? What MacArthur says about this, I never really considered. Listen to what he says. Jesus' prophecy regarding Peter's martyrdom prompted Peter to ask what would happen to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He may have asked this because of his deep concern for John's future since he was an intimate friend. Jesus' reply, you follow me, signified that his primary concern was not be John, but his continued devotion to the Lord and his service. See, Jesus politely tells Peter, it's none of your business. It's none of your business what I have in store for him. You follow me. In fact, what we see in the text is John himself must have written this much later because there was a misunderstanding among the disciples what Jesus meant by what he says here, implying that John would still be alive. Everybody else would pass away or die or martyrdom, whatever the, the, the finish would be, but John would stay alive until Jesus returned. So what are some implications for us here that we can learn from Peter? Maybe you don't do this. Peter became just as concerned, if not more, for John's future than his own. Peter isn't the only disciple of Jesus that's more concerned about God's will for someone else's life than their own. And what God's called someone else to rather than what he's called them to. So let's ask these questions, and I hope you take the time to think through this. Do we care more about how others are doing in following Christ, i.e., reading the Bible, prayer, church attendance, more so than we are ourselves? 
Do we care more about how other people spend their money for the kingdom than the way we do? Do we care more about the status of others' relationship and marriages than we care about our own? Do we care more about others and how they're raising their children and how they've raised their children than we do about our own? Do we care how they're growing spiritually but neglect to care for how we grow ourselves? Parents, the moment that you tell your children they should memorize the Bible and you don't care to do it yourself is the moment that Jesus is calling you to examine yourself. Because we have a tendency to require of our children things we ourselves don't practice as parents. Maybe I'm the only parent that does that. We require our children live pure lives when they're growing up, but we, behind the scenes, are living filth before God. We require our children to be polite to to people around them, and we're absolute jerks to those around us. We require that our children respect authority, and we're the most nastiest people when it comes to authority ourselves. Look, you may have failed in the past, parent, leader, spouse. Your walk is not to be contingent on someone else's walk. That means, ladies, if your man is not walking with God, that does not excuse you from walking with God. That means, men, if your wife is not walking with God, that does not excuse you from walking with God. Each one of us is to give an account for our life. And what Jesus does here with Peter, he says, don't be concerned about John. I've got plans for him. You follow me. Peter needs to be reminded that God's overall plan for others is none of his concern. What God is working on in others' lives is none of our concern either, ultimately. To clarify, they're following him and his calling is ultimately Christ's concern, not ours. We need to follow Christ. Now, how does, how, does that, how does that actually apply? Well, in a sense, you're saying, so I shouldn't worry at all when others are struggling and all that? No, that's not what we're talking about. And I want to make sure I clarify this because we can go off on a really dangerous tangent here. If you are concerned with yourself, then you're going to be that loving spouse you need to be to your, to your husband or wife. If you're concerned about your walk with God, you're going to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you care about your walk with God, then you're going to see someone that's hurting or financially hurting and broke, and you're going to help them out. That's what we're talking about. What we're not talking about is you looking and analyzing everyone else's sin and everyone else's struggle and wondering why they're not doing better. And looking down at them because you're doing better in that one area. You see, we all have this proclivity as Christians when God finally pulls a sin out of our life and we stop doing it, whether it's drunkenness, if you had a problem with alcohol, whatever the the sin is, once once we've stopped doing it, you know what tends to happen? We have this really nasty self-righteousness that arises in us. That we look around and find other drunks that are still doing what we used to do, and we go condemn them. It should not be that way. That is not the way it should be. I can assure you we all have certain things we need to work on. 
If we follow Christ, our paths may intersect, but our faithfulness should not be contingent upon how someone else is living their life. One of the saddest things is that a lot of Christians stop walking with God because another Christian stopped walking with God. That church hurt me, I don't need to be in church anymore. That person did me wrong, or that leader failed me. You know how many people that are leaders in the church fail people all the time? If we all looked up to them as if they're the second thing to Jesus, we'd all stop living faithfully. They're not the standard, folks. I'm not the standard. Jesus is the standard. You're following him, not me. Your concern for this nation should start with your concern for yourself, brother and sister. Where you stand in your relationship with God should matter first, not where the whole nation is. The wickedness celebrated in the world needs to be disowned in the church. You want to oppose abortion? If you're a man, you need to oppose porn as well. Those are tied in. You can't separate them. You do everything you can to follow Christ faithfully and leave the results to him to take care of when it comes to others. So here's what it means. If you're a husband, you love your wife like Christ loved the church and sacrificially give of yourself, you follow Christ so she can then respect you the way that she, you ought to be. If you're a wife, you respect your husband and you allow him to lead your home. It's amazing to me how the church wants to tell Jesus how he ought to be respected. Sadly, that's our culture today. Children or adults, you obey and honor your parents, and you don't worry about how your siblings are responding. You take care of what God wants you to take care of, even if others are not. If you're a worker, you work diligently, and you show honor in the way that you work. Not by pointing out to everybody how they're poor workers and how you're better than they are. It does not mean that you don't mention your concerns. There are concerns that have to be brought up at work at times. But you don't go before them only to put someone else down. You don't berate those above you to those that work among you. Disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to follow him completely. Give Jesus everything. That means everything that you can consider your own is really his. He is the most important person that you know. That you are willing to do anything that he calls you to. You share with others about Jesus because he matters that much to you. You don't share about Jesus because he doesn't matter that much to you. See how that works? You and I talk about what matters to us. How do we know that? Well, got a new camera. I'm going to talk to people about the fact that I got a new camera. Everybody's going to know about it. This is really neat. Here's what I got. I bought this the other week. You should check this out too. How many of us talk about Jesus with anywhere near the interest we talk about other subjects? We don't share Jesus with others because it's a duty rather than a love that we have for him. You see, that's, that's part of the problem. We think that that only happens in our walk with God. It happens our, with our conversations and relationships with others. It becomes a duty for us. It's almost like forced. I love you. Why have we gotten to that point? 
We don't deny ourselves because we want ourselves to be the most important thing. And we're so concerned with what God's doing in other people's lives because we think that we've arrived. So in conclusion, very simple question. Where's your concern? Where's your concern? Is your concern with yourself first when it comes to following Christ? Or are you looking at others' performance or life experiences, if you will? Does it mean that we don't care for others when they're hurting and just have God take care of us? Is that what we're talking about? No, that's not what we're talking about. Of course not. It means that if Christ is our priority, we're going to see the needs that others have. We're going to try to meet those needs as best as we can. What it means is, as Paul tells in Galatians, if someone is overtaken in a fall, you make sure to consider yourself first before you go help them out. Listen, if you have a similar sin that someone else struggles with, you probably aren't the right person to help them with that. You probably aren't. You probably need someone else that's much better at dealing with that sin than you are. And that's humility. That's understanding your weakness. Don't be concerned with how others are doing as disciples that you are less concerned about your own personal call for discipleship. We share more about Jesus because we care more about Jesus. That is what Peter actually ends up doing. When the early church in Acts is founded, he boldly proclaims the gospel. He was more concerned about personally obeying Christ than what others are doing about that. So you couldn't help but preach the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. You know what's interesting? Peter, restored fully by Christ, was bold. He didn't go back to denying him. Once the Holy Spirit had come upon Peter, he had boldness he never had before. So here's my question to you. I sincerely do mean this. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? And I'm not talking about know about him. There's a lot of people that know about Jesus. Plenty on this wonderful land that we call America know about Jesus. But they don't know Jesus. And they are not known by him. It's important that Jesus knows you. It's important that Jesus knows me. If you've never trusted in faith that Jesus paid for your sins, you can do that today simply by asking for forgiveness for sin. When we've been forgiven, we live a different life, believer. We live a different life. When you think of the word faith, I want you to think of a different word that the Jewish people would be thinking of when we think of faith. And that word is faithful. Faithful. Would you describe your your relationship with Christ as faithful today? Let's pray.